The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Hear now the word of the Lord as it is found in the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be able to walk you through the passage that Rachel just read for us. Thank you, Rachel. Before we go through this passage, join me for a word of prayer. Dear Father, uh, what a gift it is to read this passage as it is with any portion of Scripture. Thank you that these words that you've given us and that you've set aside for us today help us to hear your words with our with our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to enable us to to hear them, hear your words to the point of making us more like your Son, your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's it's in the name that we pray, His name that we pray these things. Amen. 
Well, Happy New Year to you all. I hope 2024 is off to an incredible start. Uh, with the new year, we've begun a new sermon series here at Christ Pres. You, you may have noticed we've, we announced it earlier that, uh, and seen all the graphics and things around the church uh, and in the hallways, bulletins. That series is entitled The Last Supper. Uh, it's a sermon series on the portion of John's gospel that is known as the Upper Room Discourse, and it's contained in John chapters 13. To 17. Now, before we dig into this passage, I want to give you a sense of where we are in relation to the rest of John's gospel. It's important that when you read John's gospel, you have to understand he's not necessarily giving us a chronological uh, narrative of the life of Christ. It wasn't John's primary purpose in writing his gospel to do that. And, and this is what sets John apart from, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, John tells us why. He gives us the why of, of why all the details that he's included and all the details that he's written and why he's, he's chosen to give us the specific accounts that he's given us. He could have written so much more, he tells us, but he picked these accounts. Verse 31 of chapter 20 says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what I love about this book. John's telling us, I'm, I'm not going to give you a summary of Jesus. I'm going to tell you why you should believe that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah. So John strings together a series of signs and teachings showing us that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior. Now, here's why I love this. Here's why I love this. Let's be honest with each other for a moment. Can we be honest with each other here? Have you ever had doubts about your faith? Maybe you have doubts right now. Is all of this stuff real? Is it, is it actually true? And John says, it is. It is, and, and let me show you. Let me show you. Do you know that I know someone who, that's how they got saved. They read the book of John, and that's it. That's what did it. There's so, much, there's so much rich content in this book, and even the passage that we have today, we could spend weeks on just this passage. You see, the first half of John, the first half of John, uh, his gospel, details various encounters he has with people. Maybe you've noticed we also have a new study in our, in our lobby. Uh, it's called John Bear Witness to the Light. In that study, we're going to take you through the first half of the book of John and detail all the encounters, many of the encounters that Jesus had with people. And as a result of those encounters, those people were changed because they had an encounter with God in the flesh. Of course they were changed. But then you get to the second half of the book of John. The second half of the book of John. The second half begins with this, the upper room discourse. The book of John has 21 chapters, and this dialogue, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room as they, as they partake and begin to prepare for the Last Supper, this conversation occupies about a quarter of the entire book, a quarter of the book devoted to what must have just been a few hours. And then the remainder of the book details Jesus' journey to the cross, culminating in His death and His resurrection. So, so look at the arc of the book here. Half of the book is, is, is John telling you who Jesus is. Look, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is Christ the Savior. And then the second half of the book is showing us, John says, and, and oh my goodness, look what He's done for you. Look what He's done for you. And look how He did it. So the first half of the book 
is screaming, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. And now what? Now we get into John chapter 13. Jesus pulls his disciples in closely. This is an intimate, quiet setting. There are no crowds. Jesus has just pulled off one of the greatest feats the eye has ever seen, the resurrection of Lazarus. Of course he's the Messiah. Did you see what he just did? So, so what's he going to do now? What's he going to do now? Now that he has us here, what's he going to tell us? How is he going to tell us to prepare for what's going to happen next? Because that's what this discourse is all about. In one sense, in one sense, this is a discourse that has applications for all of of Christ's followers. But there's also a sense that this is a discourse aimed at the people in the room. And we get to listen in. Jesus is telling them, this is it. This is it. The hour is here. My time has arrived. All the things that you're about to go through, it's going to get rough. It's going to get rough. And so he's taking time to prepare them for what they're about to face in the days ahead. Now, I don't know what the disciples were expecting in this moment. By this point, they're certainly convinced, yeah, this is the guy. This is the, this is the, one. This is the Christ. What's he going to say now? What's he going to say to prepare us for what's next? What are they expecting? One of my all-time favorite movies is uh, perhaps my favorite is the movie Braveheart, based on the true story of William Wallace. I was in seminary when that, that movie first came out. It made such an impression on me. I walked away from that movie asking myself, what am, what am I willing to die for? One of the most iconic scenes in that movie was when the, the Scottish armies were about to leave because they couldn't imagine fighting, let alone defeating the English armies, and they started to turn and run and leave, saying some of the effect, we're not going to die for these guys. But then William Wallace stops them in their tracks, and he says, Rondon, you'll live. I wish I had a better better Scottish accent than that. It's so much better if it's, just imagine I have a great Scottish accent as I say this. Rondon, you'll live at least a little while, and dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? He got the soldiers all fired up, and then they charged the English armies on the battlefield. If you've ever read the book of John, and you got to this point in the book, this is the kind of speech that you're expecting Jesus to give the disciples. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this, guys? This is the moment of truth. Are you ready to storm the gates of hell? But that's not what he says to them. Instead of getting them all fired up, ready to take on the Roman Empire, what did he say? What did he do? feet. He washed their feet. Can I tell you something? Feet are disgusting. They are. You know why? Because they're almost always dirty. They're so seldom clean. And, and, And that's speaking from a modern 21st century standpoint. Now, I've been given permission to tell you this about my son, but I'm not supposed to mention his name. But my oldest son wants you to know it's not him. But anyway, (laughs) one time one of my son's toes became infected. No surprise, he's a boy, right? He's a boy, his feet are dirty. But it got so infected, yes, we took him to the doctor for treatment, but it got so infected, he affectionately referred to that toe as his zombie toe. You know why? Because it looked like a toe that would only belong to a zombie, a dead person. 
<laughs> podiatrists, and they, podiatrists see this kind of stuff all the time, too. I mean, they, they, they've based their entire careers on, on, on the many dysfunctions of the foot. You know, feet are gross. Now, imagine the feet of someone who lived in Jerusalem in the first century. Feet uncovered, who, whose only barrier was, was, was between the bottom and, and the unpaved, dusty walkway was a thin layer of, of untreated animal skin. From a cultural standpoint, there was arguably nothing more unclean than a person's feet. That sentiment remains true and intact to this very day. Some of you might remember when the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was deposed from power, many of the Iraqis removed their shoes from their feet and with them smacked the posters and images of the dictator that had been displayed throughout the cities and, and towns. There was no greater insult that they could act out than, than taking the implement of their feet and hitting it upon the likeness of his image, because feet are gross. Jesus was a rabbi, and if you were a rabbi during this time, like Jesus, he had disciples. Disciples were learners. That's literally what the word means, but as a disciple, you had responsibilities beyond just being a good student. You were obligated to tend to the needs of the rabbi, you ensured he was well provided for, that he had food to eat, that he had clothes to wear. That was part of your role as a disciple. But to care for the rabbi's feet, that's off the table. Hard pass, not the feet. Even the disciples, even the disciples who cared for the rabbi, they weren't expected to tend to the feet of the rabbi because that's unclean. But when you would enter someone's home, naturally your feet would be dirty. And then it was the job of the servant to wash the feet. It was such a lowly task that it was exclusively reserved for the indentured servant, a slave, and who more than likely wasn't even Jewish. So it would be a Gentile slave, the lowliest of low positions in society's hierarchy that would engage in this lowliest of tasks, the washing of feet. If the disciples were expecting a talk to get them all fired up, they didn't get it. Instead, knowing his time had come, he washed the feet, the disgusting feet of the disciples. The teacher washing the feet of the disciples. Why did he do it? Of all the things, of all the things he could have done, why did he do this? Why did he wash, of all things, feet? Look what he's doing this way. I don't want you to miss this. This is so good. This is unbelievable. I, I can't get over this. I want you to back up just a bit uh, in the book of John. This will only take a second. We're in John chapter 13 now. I just want to back up a little bit to John chapter 12. And the chapter right before this one, John 12, 27 tells us this. This is John 12, 27. Jesus is saying, now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled from the Greek, terasso, which means to stir up, to agitate. Jesus says, now my soul is agitated. But then he goes on to say, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. My soul is troubled. It, Jesus says as he approaches this, his final hour, my soul is troubled. But now look what he tells the disciples in John chapter 14, just all part of the same dialogue, all part of this, this upper room discourse. He tells this to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 1. Are you ready for this? What does he tell his disciples? Let not your hearts be 
Teresesto. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why would he say that? Why would he tell his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled right on the heels of him telling his father, my soul is troubled? If his heart is troubled, isn't it reasonable for the disciples to have have troubled hearts too? Aren't we all in this together? And that's the point. That's why he's here. That's why he's washing their feet. It's as if he's saying, I will take on your burden. I will be troubled so you don't have to be. Sinclair Ferguson says he was taking their ultimate trouble upon himself in order that they might not be troubled. I'll take it. I'll take the trouble. Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to wash your feet, the filthiest part of you. I will take your filth and I'll wash it away. I'll take, I'll take your burden. He tells them in verse 7, after Peter objects, you don't understand this now, but soon you will. Soon you'll understand this. So Jesus is giving us an explanation as to what he's doing. In, in, in these passages, he gives us two reasons, two reasons as to what's going on here. This is the first reason. You don't understand it now, but soon you will, after, afterwards. In other words, you, you don't get this now, but after my death, after my death and resurrection, you'll get it. You'll understand. This is important to understand. Why is he washing their feet? Yes, to take on their burden. But Jesus is making another theological statement here. It's important to understand that he's washing the disciples' feet, that that action is being done in the shadow of the cross. It would be difficult to understand the significance of the foot washing apart from the events of the crucifixion. The foot washing is an act of love, but it's a symbolic act, a symbolic act that points us to the crucifixion, the ultimate act of love. Jesus is forecasting, through this foot washing, Jesus is forecasting what's just hours away from happening. He's saying, I'm going to wash you. I'm going to make you clean. In complete humiliation, I'm going to take the dirtiest part of you and make you clean. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel told us of a day when the Lord would wash His people. Make us clean. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be made clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new heart I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll take the worst part of you, he says, the dirtiest part of you, and I'll make it clean. So, so that's what Jesus is doing. As he washes their feet, he's also telling us how. How is he going to wash? How is he going to wash us clean? How is he going to take the filthiest part of us and make us clean? No, not by overthrowing the Roman Empire. Not by, make, not, not by making a charge on the battlefield. But he would do this as a servant. He'd do it as a servant. Not by obtaining the highest seat in political power, which is what the disciples were expecting. But by occupying the lowest place of a servant, I'll make you clean, not through heights unknown, but by descending to depths unknown. I'll make you clean. I'll give you a new heart through my suffering. This is why he's telling his disciples, you don't understand this now, but you will. Because this is, is not the kind of Messiah the disciples were, were thinking about. Victory through death? Unheard of. 
This is why Peter is all over the place. Peter's all over the place here. I love Peter because he says the quiet part out loud. He says the part that maybe everybody's thinking, but no one is, 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 is uh, everyone's afraid to say it. But not Peter. Peter has a way of bringing out the awkward in the most awkward way possible. As Jesus begins washing their feet, Peter says, no way, no way. You're not going to wash my feet because he's thinking about the norms of the day. This, this was a practice, again, reserved for the servant, not for the conquering Messiah. You're not washing my feet, Jesus. That's beneath you. No Messiah of mine is going to wash my feet. And Jesus responds with, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I almost feel bad for Peter here. I really do, because Jesus is, is seamlessly moving between the symbolic and the actual. He's moving seamlessly between the pointer and the thing the pointer is referencing. Peter's talking about feet. Jesus is talking about Peter's heart. If I don't wash you, Peter, if I don't go through what I'm about to go through on the cross, you'll never receive a new heart. So, Peter, I have to humble myself. That's what this is pointing to. I have to humble myself. I have to go through the humiliation of the cross so that you can have a share with me. You see, foot washing was symbolic of all that. And so, of course, Peter doesn't get any of this. Peter's, Peter's eyes are still focused on earthly kingdoms here. So when Jesus tells him, I have to wash you, Peter, or you're out, that suddenly becomes too costly of a proposition for Peter. Jesus has already said they don't understand what's happening, but Peter thinks he gets it. It's as if he's saying, fine, whatever this is, whatever's happening here, if my share of the kingdom hinges upon a washing, then fine. In fact, to show you how in I am, wash my feet, my hands, and my head, Lord, wash it all. In other words, Peter's telling Jesus, you want to see how in I am? You want to see how bought in I am to all this? You want to see my enthusiasm for having a share in this kingdom that you're about to usher in? Again, he's still thinking earthly kingdoms. If my portion of power and influence hinges upon a washing, then wash it all. That's how in I am. Do you notice how Peter just flips back and forth here? Just back and forth. Right? He went, went back and forth so quickly, no, you're not washing my feet, to suddenly, fine, my hands, my feet, my head, everything. Peter tried to refuse the foot washing, not because he had a holy reverence for Jesus, but because he couldn't reconcile in his mind a conquering Messiah who was also a foot washer. But when his position within that conquering Messiah's kingdom was threatened, he said, fine, wash it all. It's flip-flop. Peter is still trying to make this all about him. He's trying to make it all about him in both responses. The reality is, here's the reality, we do the very same thing. You and I, we do the very same thing. We tell the Lord, I'll do whatever you want, Lord, so long as it fits within the realm of how I want things to go. We do this all the time. As long as there's an upside to what he's asking me to do, I'll go along. This is Peter's whole narrative here. As long as there's an upside for me, I'll do, I'll do whatever. Yesterday, my, my wife started taking down all the Christmas decorations, which means there's a lot of bins that have to come down from the attic. And there's a lot of bins. So I asked my son to help her bring down the bins and then take them back up once again once they were full. Well, he seemed to think this was a negotiation of sorts. He said this, get this, I'll help take the bins back and forth, but I want one taco for every bin that I take up and down. Now, 
I, I could have just said, no, do what you're told, go help your mom, but I thought this was a good deal for me. Not only would he help his mom, but he would do so with enthusiasm because his currency is tacos. And after all, how many tacos could he set me back, right? Cut to the… Yes. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. Cut to the end of the story. I'm looking at a $30 Taco Bell invoice. I'm like, how is that even possible? And truth be told, it wasn't a lot of tacos. Inflation has even hit Taco Bell. I, when I was his age, I could buy an entire Taco Bell franchise for $30. Times are tough. Lord, I'll go along. I'll go along, but I've got conditions. I've got conditions. Peter's entire response, both initially and then to follow, was, I want there to be an upside for me. But we can't do that with the Lord. You know why? Because He sees it all. He knows the beginning from the end. And He loves you. Because He sees it all, He knows the beginning from the end. He'll never ask you to do something that is inconsistent with His character. He'll never ask you to do something that won't shape you after His character. So we can't insert our conditions thinking it's for the better. We can't outdo Him in that respect. We have to trust Him. We have to go along with what He's asking. Jesus tells Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but, but is completely clean. Again, Jesus upholds the metaphor here by suggesting when someone bathes and then they go outside, they don't need to, to take a bath all over again upon reentering. Believe it or not, there's been a good bit of debate as to what Jesus is meaning here, but what he seems to be telling Peter here is, again, moving seamlessly between the symbolic and the actual. He's saying, no, I don't need to wash your hands. I don't need to wash your head, Peter because I've got you. I've already got you. I've got you. You're already mine. The washing of your feet is the pointer that says, I will humiliate myself to the point of death for you, Peter, because you're already mine. You're already mine. And, and this is the assurance that I hope you take from this passage too. What makes you clean is the work of Christ and Christ alone. He sets you aside from all eternity. He's washed you, and nothing will ever, ever, ever change that. If you believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ, the humiliation that He voluntarily gave Himself over to, the humiliation of the, of the cross to pay for your sins, if you believe that, then you're already His. You're His already. You've been washed, and you're clean. You have a new heart. No additional washing required. And with this new heart... Jesus then reveals the second meaning behind the washing of the disciples' feet. Again, the first points to his, clean, his, his, uh, his cleansing power, his washing of our heart and displacement of our sin through his humiliation on the cross. The second meaning he tells us plainly, verses 14 and 15, he says, If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. It's, it's really pretty simple. I've done this for you. If I've done this for you, then you should be able to do it for each other. If the Lord of the universe can humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, and we're being made to be like him, our hearts being conformed to his, then how can we not wash one another's feet? Jesus says, I will take on humiliation for your glorification. How can we do that for each other? How can I lower myself so that you can be lifted up? 
How can I sacrifice so that you can flourish? Listen, if we all have this mindset, if we all adopt this mindset, no one is left in want. All our needs are met because I voluntarily sacrifice myself for your sake and you voluntarily sacrifice yourself for mine. Neither one of us has to put requirements on the other because we're constantly looking out for each other. Who around you is in need? Think about that. Who around you is in need? I promise you don't have to look far. Who, who is in need where you can give of your time and resources to meet their needs? Who in your orbit is hurting? How can you give yourself to absorb their hurt? That's the whole message of the gospel. Someone gave themselves for your sakes. Now, with hearts renewed, go and do likewise. That's it. As they sat in the upper room, no doubt, once again, the disciples didn't understand everything that Jesus spoke. They didn't get it because the story wasn't finished yet. And Jesus told them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know what's remarkable about that statement? There was one in the room who was, pre who was prepared to betray the Lord. We know about Judas. But the other 11, they left the room unsure. But once they experienced the rest of the story, once they lived through the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension, once their eyes were opened to what foot washing was really about, the sacrifice of Christ for the remission of sins and, and the defeat of our greatest foe, the sacrifice that He made for us, it was these 11 men that went forth like they were shot out of a cannon. Except for John, every last one of them was martyred for what they confessed. Christ gave me everything. Why wouldn't I do the same? And it becomes one of the most compelling reasons to believe in the truth that is Jesus Christ. Who would die for a lie? Who would die for a half-truth? Each one of those 11 were the first carriers of the gospel, the ones who went forth saying, He gave Himself for me. Now I'll return the favor. In death or in life, I'll sacrifice it all for the one who humbled Himself for me, for the one who washed my feet and here's the image that I can't get out of my head. It's always interesting to me to find connecting points between the Old Testament and the New. This whole episode is about feet. And the reason the imagery of feet is used here is because, as we've already said, they're gross. But those dirty feet that the Lord washed were the very feet that went forth and did something beautiful. In Isaiah 52, we're given another image of feet. And this imagery, the Apostle Paul repeats in Romans 10, what are we told? Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The dirty feet of the disciples and of you and me are now made beautiful. Not for anything in and of themselves, but they are made beautiful because of the message they now carry. And we, like the disciples, we have been washed. Our hearts are clean. And the same message they were given to carry forward, we've been given too. You and I have the same message. You and I have the same charge. It's been given to us to carry the good news of the gospel. That's our job now. We carry a message in humility that publishes peace. Let's go tell the world. Let's go tell the world 
of the one who washed us and will do the same for anyone who believes in him. Join me in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, please help us remember. Please help us remember how the Savior washed the feet of those that he loved. How he himself put himself in humiliation's path to clean them and gave them hearts that would conform to your likeness. And because you put your hearts in them, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for, for that we have that same gospel, and that gospel now reaches the far corners of the earth. Help us now, empower us, give us the strength and courage to take this good news and tell the world and show the world how we've been changed, how we've been made clean by the one who sacrificed himself for us. And it's his name we pray. Amen.